podcast of Odessa First Assembly. I'm so glad that you're joining us for the Seven Churches series. This series is about the seven churches in the book of Revelation. If you'd like more information about our church, you can find us at odessafirst.com or on any social media platform. I pray that you are strengthened and encouraged by today's message. John was the author of Revelation. He was a disciple. He was apostle. He was, uh, he's been known as John the Revelator, John the Evangelist. And so who is Revelation written to? Well, it's written kind of to two different groups. And one of those groups are the seven churches that we've been talking about. But it's also, if you read Revelations 1.1, it tells us also to the servants of Jesus. And so it's for anybody that's serving the Lord and the seven churches. We believe it was written about uh, before 100 A.D., 95, 96 A.D., and, but here's the important thing. Why don't we look at these things? It's because something I've said for several weeks, and I'm going to keep saying it, is that to really understand Scripture, to really be able to pull out what Scripture is telling us and be able to apply it into our life, we've got to understand the original context of the verses of Scripture. And so there's something we see with that groundwork in Revelation, three things that are so important. And I, I want you to remember this. It is, uh, why was Revelation written? It was to give an unshakable hope to believers, to Christians that were suffering. They were being persecuted in that area of Turkey. Like, it, it was unprecedented what they were going through. And so it was to give an unshakable hope that no matter what the persecution was, they were going to have hope. The second thing was is to encourage a, a lifestyle of holiness. We're going to kind of zero in on that just a little more this morning, but unwavering holiness in a culture that was horrible, that was terrible, and to give promises of blessing the faithful that it is worth it to serve God. And matter of fact, if I were to kind of give this message a subtitle, it would be that you can live for God. So many times we get discouraged in, as we're trying to serve the Lord, and we go through struggles, we go through, we fall short at times, and it discourages, but listen to me, even in this culture that we live in right now, you can serve the Lord God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. As you're reminded of one of the old hymns we used to sing, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. Bravely run the race till we see Christ. It is worth it. And so as we look, let's look, let's read about this church's third church and we're, we're looking at where these seven churches are is modern-day Turkey. In Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, and it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful, Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have, seen, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before his sons of Israel so that they may not eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual morality. So also you have some 
who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Verse 17, who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. I love when he says this right here because it's kind of a, a switch. It's not just to the church. Remember, it's also written to who? To all the people that are serving to the Lord. And so there's a switch in the tone what Jesus says here. He's, just, he's, he's like, oh, this is to everybody. The one who conquers, I'll give him some of the hidden manna. I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And so let's lay a little bit of that historical groundwork just really quick. So don't, don't doze off on me. Stay awake. Pay attention. And uh, I believe you'll be encouraged this morning. But here in Pergamum, it, there's so much going on during this time. And uh, it was really a city that was kind of a, almost a, the, the, the metro of all the idol worship that was going on in the land of that day. It had temples. I mean, it had, it had one street that was just lined with false gods that led to a huge colonnade that was dedicated to Zeus. Um, there was Asclepius, who was, we get, where, it's where we get the symbol today for the medical field. It's the staff with the serpents that surround it. I think we have it on the screen up here. I mean, that's where that comes from. And so they had a temple just for that. There was a, a, a huge library there that was, uh, they, they really considered themselves highly educated and and, uh, you know, high, very high socially, had over 200,000 volumes. And the emperor there, the leader there, wanted to even have it make it bigger than the library in um, Alexandria. But uh, there, he set up embargoes and stopped that from happening. But as I said, there was this huge um, temple for Zeus. And it was, it was massive. It was, on each, it was shaped like a horseshoe. And each side of it was about 100 feet long. And, but the whole thing together is about 400 feet. It stood up uh, uh, about 40 feet in the air. It was massive. But there was something about the governor of Asia. And the, the, the governor of Asia resided here. So the man that really oversaw all of the cities resided here in Pergamum. And he, his title was the Champion of Justice. The champion of justice. And what it, really what it meant is that he uh, exercised more capital punishment than any other of the seven cities and any other people in that known area. I mean, he was just like on a whim, just would, just would kill people, just have them have capital punishment, have their life taken. And so this is significant for this reason. If you remember in the book of, uh, to the letter to Ephesus, is that what was kind of the core thing there? Is Jesus says, you've lost your first love, return and do the works you did before. And so Ephesus was known as a city of love. Uh, we talked about the church of Smyrna. In Smyrna, they, they championed themselves because they were a city that almost turned to a ghost town. But they, they, they claimed that they were a city that was dead but came back to life. And that's what ex Jesus said. Jesus said, I'm the one that has 
come back to life. And so with all of these cities, to me it's fascinating that Jesus uses something that is known in that culture to make an illustration about who he is. And it's the same thing with this emperor, this person that, you know, this governor of this area. And he had a, a symbol sword, and on it it said, Yos uh, Gladii. It took me a while to get that down. Yos Gladii. And it meant that he, he really had the power to execute anyone that he willed, and he had a sword that represented that. But look what Jesus says in verse 12. Did you catch it? He said at the beginning of the letter, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And so here again, Jesus is saying, you have this emperor who thinks he's one of justice, but there's nobody that gives justice like I do. You have this person that believes that they have the power of life and death. Nobody has the power of life and death as I do. And so here we, I mean, and think about this introduction, by the way. You know, I want to remind you that most likely what happened is the pastor of the churches stood up and read that. He's like, man, we got this letter from John. It was given to him by Jesus. And so I want you to hear this letter. It's most likely the pastor reading the letter to the church. I mean, think about the introduction of this. I have a sharp two-edged sword, but listen to me. In comparison to the governor, this is your first point, number one. In comparison to the governor of Pergamum, this, this, this Yos Gladia, Jesus' sword is his word. And we're familiar with that. We know that his word, matter of fact, the Bible tells us what? The Bible tells us that his, for the word of God, is living is and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it has a purpose And what does it do? It divides soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts of the heart and its intentions. And I know, right, and I think so many times when we read that promise and we say, yes, the word of God is living and active, we really don't make the connection of what the rest of this verse is saying, but we see it really come to fruition In Revelation, it gives us a deeper meaning even of Hebrews 4.12. And and one of the the things that speaks to that is Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15. And it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword which to strike down nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress in the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. I, I really wish I had time to go in the depth of what this verse means. I, I don't completely. This is, that, this is happening, you know, after the, what's going to happen after the battle of Armageddon. We see in the end times. But listen, he says, from this sharp sword, and he's going to strike down nations. The sword is a symbolic representation of the word of God's twofold ability. The word of God has a twofold ability to separate believers from the world and to condemn the world for its sin. And that's the purpose of the sword, a two-edged sword. It has two purposes. And so there is an edge of the sword that is for judgment. Listen to me. I know in our culture today, we'd much rather turn on the TV preacher that gives us goosebumps and whipped cream. Come on, somebody. But listen to me. 
There is an edge of the sword that is for judgment. The sword of salvation as well as a sword of judgment. So there is an edge for judgment. There's going to be two judgments that are faced by two different groups of people. One of them is the great white throne judgment. Anybody ever heard of the great white throne judgment? The great white throne judgment is for those who Christ is not their Lord. So it's for anybody that is not saved. So when, it, when, when all this comes to fruition, there's going to be the great white throne judgment. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a judgment of all of those whose Lord is not Jesus. But there's also a second judgment. And it's called the judgment seat of Christ. Anybody ever heard of the judgment seat of Christ? The judgment seat of Christ is where believers will be evaluated and rewarded. Now at this point, if you don't, right, if, if those that don't serve the Lord, that's, they're going to receive their eternal punishment. Those who don't know the Lord are going to receive their eternal reward. Are you following me? And so the, there's the sort of judgment, but church, listen to me. We cannot, I, I believe, listen, I believe, I'm, there's no doubt I believe that we're living in a place of grace right now. We live in a place of grace. We do not live in a place of God's judgment. But there's going to come a day where there's going to be a reckoning. There's going to come a day where it's all going to come to fruition. And even us as believers, we need to realize that we're going to pass before the Lord and everything we said, everything we thought, everything we did as well will be judged. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I've laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. Of course, this is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Verse 11, For no one can lay a foundation other than which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 12, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, Wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day. What is that day? That day is the judgment seat of Christ. We'll disclose it. And it will be revealed by fire. What it's saying is this. There's going to be a day where everything we've done, it's going to go through a fire. And that fire will either prove it to be gold and pure and righteous and turn to jewels. Or it's going to be like wood, hay, and stubble and be burned up. But see, there's a second edge to the sword. The second edge of the sword is for protection. There is an edge for judgment, but there's also an edge for protection. Remember, this sword, it divides spirit and soul, bone and marrow. Are you following me? And so there's an edge of protection. And we need to understand that where we gain that protection, of course, it's the spirit of God at work in us. But I think specifically, it has to do with the word of God. What is the word of God? The word of God is the sword. And so there's an edge for protection. I think a great example of that is in Matthew chapter 4. Remember, Matthew chapter 4 is where Jesus, he had been fasting for 40 days. The Bible says that he was hungry. I would, you know, I, he's Jesus. He's fully God, but he was fully man. So after 40 days, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you would just turn these stones to loaves of bread. You, you're, you're Jesus. 
You're the son of God. You can do that. You can turn these stones to bread. But Jesus responds what? Matthew 4, 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but what? Every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Listen to me. There is power in the word of God. There is power in the word of God. And God's word brings you protection. Come on, somebody. I, I know I'm going to operate about 50%, but I think I'm doing a little better than that. And so what does that mean? That means when the enemy comes at you, you have a weapon that is found in God's promises. How do you wield that sword? You speak and quote the word of God. That's exactly what Jesus did. Oh, yeah, yeah I, I can do that, but I know that that's not what I need. I know that I also live out of the, the words that my father says, every word that comes to the mouth of God. In Revelations 12, 13, we see that it goes on to say, and thank you, this is Tony's sword. Let me sharpen that for you. I'll sharpen it. Maybe not. But like, uh, who's that? Never mind. I probably shouldn't go there. COVID brain. Okay. Revelations 2, 13. And look, I mean, this is, this is pretty uh, uh, like a direct. <laughs> I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. But he says something here, and we'll come back to this in a minute. Yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas. My faith. We don't know. We don't really know who Antipas was. He could have been the pastor. Uh, some believe of the church of Pergamum at one point, but he was killed among you, martyred. Where Satan dwells. I mean, we're at a place that is the center of all of these different pagan gods. A center for worship and even that of emperor worship. I mean, remember that Polycarp, we talk about Polycarp and, uh, and his church in Ephesus that would not sacrifice to Caesar. And so he was executed. The same thing's happening here and Jesus has these two statements. He says, where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells. I mean, they're, they're, they, they worshiped Zeus. They worshiped a god, Athene, the, uh, the god of war, Dionysus of wine, Asclepius, medicine, and the emperor worship. And matter of fact, Asclepius, they, they had a temple for that false god, and it was full of serpents. And that's where that graphic comes from it was full of serpents and the people would go lay down in the floor of that temple waiting for snakes to crawl over them the thought of maybe that would heal them I mean think about how and so I mean this is all that's taking place their their emperor worship this temple full of snakes and and uh, the Zeus temple but listen to me in the midst of living where Satan dwells and his throne is a believer can still be faithful. Remember what Jesus said, where, where his throne is, but he said he commended them, yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny faith, even when people were being martyred and killed among you in this place where Satan dwells. I'm going to tell you this, that if those believers in that first century can serve God in the middle of what they lived in, in Pergamum, we can live for God today in the United States of America. 
There should be no reason, no excuse that we can't live for God. If people can be faithful and not deny Jesus in the middle of where Satan's throne is, we should be able to serve the Lord. I mean, we really need to choose. Remember, Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. We need to make that choice, and I want you to know that you can do it in the middle of where Satan's throne is. And I'm going to tell you, looking at our culture and looking at what we see in entertainment and Hollywood and all, you know, this, all the agendas going around that are really this anti-Christ, that spirit that is taking root in so many hearts, you can still be righteous. You can still be holy. You can still serve the Lord. I mean, think about some of the promises given to us. Deuteronomy 31, 6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Or how about, a, how about the promise in Isaiah 41, 10? Fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I mean, the scripture's full of promises. Listen to me. When you are going through that difficult time, through that trial, through that, through, through, that, through that darkness, whatever it may be you may be facing, listen, perseverance in the midst of suffering is believing in advance that what will make sense in the reverse, meaning this. You may not what's going on in the middle of it, but maybe it, after it all, it'll make sense. You'll see what God is working. So first thing is this. Stop being surprised when suffering comes. It's going, listen, we're going to go through seasons where things are awesome, things are great, God blesses, and we're going to be on cloud nine, but you're going to go through times in life where it's going to be difficult. Don't be surprised when that happens. Maybe, let me say it this way. Get prayed up before it happens. Right? I mean, be solid in your faith before that moment happens. Don't wait till you're in the middle of it. That's the wrong time to make that choice. You don't have to know why. I think so many times in, in the American church today, we, we want to know why. Listen, yet the, you know, the Bible says that God's ways are higher than our ways. And his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. You know, God's smarter than us. Did, did you know that? God, God, I know there's a lot of people that live out there that think they're smarter than God. They're not. You don't have to know the why of what you go through. I think it's okay to ask the Lord. I do. I, to have that conversation. But listen to me. So many people, they, their faith, it's, it's just that to and fro faith. that's just being tossed around with the waves you, God doesn't have to tell you why. And we need to be okay with that. I mean, in Job and God's perspective is bigger than ours. We only see a small part of it, but God sees the, all of it. He sees the whole. And number th the third thing about that is this. We need to live eternally minded. I am a believer, I'm a firm believer that God, I know that God, he wants to establish his kingdom on earth. He wants to transform people. He wants people to come to salvation. He wants people delivered. He wants people set free. He wants all of those things more than what we want to see it to happen. But really what it comes down to is regardless of what happens here, this is not our prize. 
We've got to live eternally minded. 2 Corinthians 4.16. So we do not lose heart. So that tells us, right, when you're going through the difficult time, don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, for the things that are unseen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Start living eternally minded. In the midst of the evil and the, in, in the midst of all the bad things that are happening, in the midst of, 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 of difficulties in life, listen, God can do things right in your specific situation, but keep your eye on the prize. I, I, I don't know that this fits. It probably doesn't. But I thought it was a great quote. I, I just I'd looked at Facebook this morning and one of our fellow pastors here in Odessa, Pastor John Van Hoosie, pastors uh, Bethel Assembly of God there in 42nd, he wrote this on his Facebook this morning. I thought it was great. There are a lot of Pentecostals that are like someone with a full tank of gas in their cars and with the car sitting in their driveway revving up the engine but never putting their car in gear and they wonder why they aren't going anywhere. I was like, man, that'll preach. Verses 14 and 15. My timer's going off, so I'm going to add five minutes. Revelations 2, 14. But I have a few things. So here, we, we, he had this commendation. He's telling him, in the middle of this culture, this satanic, idol, this, this culture full of idolatry, You've been faithful to me, but as we see in the other churches, he has something against them. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual morality. So you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Listen to me. Very simply, Balaam and Nicolaitans, they mean the same thing. It means conquer the people. It means conquer the people. Balaam actually has a lot of like swallow up the people, deceive the people. It, it has a lot of connotations to it. And so we have this something going on here where Jesus says, you've got these two type of people in your church. And I have this against you. Think of how, I mean, this is a strong statement. And the Nicolaitans, I mean, really, they were very hedonistic. They were very um, pleasure-oriented. And so Christ has these plaints against them. And so apparently there were those in the church that were tolerating these different practices and people in the church. Very short. Let me see if I can just do this really quick. If you look in the, in the book of Numbers... In Numbers 22 through 25, you'll see the story of Balaam and Balak. And what happened is, this is short of it, is that Balak hired Balaam, a sorcerer, to, uh, to curse the children of Israel. They were coming out of Egypt, remember? And they're headed to the promised land. And they come up to Balak's kingdom. And, you know, they had been whopping everybody out. Balak was scared. He hires this sorcerer. He says, curse these people. And God just wouldn't let Balaam do it. But then Balaam comes up with an idea. He says, well, what we need to do is get these women, the, these uh, uh, 
these that worship false gods in your land to come in and intermarry with the children of Israel and to get them to worship your idols. And so that's what happened. It's the very, very short of it. I mean, can, can, any, can any of us make a connection with the modern day church right now? And he says, I have this against you that you've allowed these people come in and to worship a God that is not me. You know, man will always have an opinion about who Jesus is, who God is. And that's such the important moment in Matthew chapter 16 where Peter gets this revelation given to him. And Jesus says that you couldn't have got that unless my father gave it to you. But, you know, all, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they're like, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. These are these opinions who Jesus is. But he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, what? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. We need the accurate, true, unadulterated view of who Jesus is. And so they also have these Nicolaitans that, uh, you know, Ephesus didn't give in to them. You remember we talked about them in, in Ephesus just for a brief moment. And I said in this message, I'll talk a little more about them. And so here are these, these people in Ephesus. They recognized the error of how they were living. And the scripture tells us that they were not deceived by it. But here in the church of Pergamum, these, these really these, uh, these men, these women, these people were living a life of pleasure and justifying how they were living in the church. They were, they were supposed Christians who had compromised their faith to enjoy sinful pleasures of their society. The third thing is this. They withstood the attack against the church from the outside. You said, you've been faithful in the middle of where Satan's throne is but she fell short from the attack on the inside. See, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 2, 12 and verse 2, some of you know this verse, right? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. The church should not fit inside this world. The church should not fit inside of this world we are called to be separate we are called to be holy and i know we we hear terminology like that and there's there may be some of us in the room or some watching online listen i know that there there are generations of people missing out of the church because they grew up under such religious oppression of tradition and, and really think man's rules that were not rooted in the grace of Scripture. And I get that, but that doesn't mean we get to swing the pendulum the entire other way. Are you following me this morning? I know that grace is free to us to accept. Christ paid a price that we could not pay. Christ paid a price that we could not pay. But what that should do inside of us is a complete submission to him. If any man be in Christ as a new creation, yes. 
We also know if we abide in him, we bear much fruit. But apart from him, we can do nothing. John 15. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And what's significant about that, when he tells them in just a moment, I, I don't think I've gotten there yet, but he tells them to repent. And of course, we know that means a change of direction, right? But here in Revelation, when he tells them to repent, there's another level to that repentance that, of what uh, that word repent means. It also means a changing of the way that you think. Transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may be to what? Test and discern what is good, what is acceptable, what is the will of God, what is perfect. How are you going to do that? You're going to judge it and base it on what God's word tells us. Verses 16 and 17. All right, we're coming. Is this okay? Or I'm, not, I'm not browbeating you. I, I want you. That, that's not the purpose of this. But we have bought a lot. Oh, I, mm. We have bought this deception, this lie that it's okay to social drink. We have bought this lie that it's okay to live together before marriage. We have bought these lies of society that has infiltrated the church and try to use scripture to justify it when it doesn't. When it doesn't. You guys, I never, like I don't, maybe COVID is, well anyway. You know, I normally don't say stuff like this because I, I don't stand, I don't like that soapbox stuff, but listen to me. Church, we cannot win the world over if we look like the world. We can't. There's got to be something different about us. There has to be. Revelation 6, all right, so you can blame that on COVID and not email me. Okay. Revelation chapter 2, we're coming in for a landing here. Therefore, repent. Not just change direction, but change the way that you process information. If not, I'll come soon to you and war. I mean, do you want to be the church that Jesus wars against? <laughs> I, I, I don't. <laughs> With the sword of my how is he going to do it? With his word, verse 17 who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I'll give him the hidden manna. What does that manna represent? What that manna represents? You know what? This, we got kids VBS stuff up here already. And I, I, they have, I don't know why they have this stuff. I'm, I'm interested to find out. But they have something here that represents manna. And what manna, so it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirits of the church is. The one who conquers, I'll give him some hidden manna. Do you know what that manna represents? That represents the promises and the blessing that you find in God's word. That's what that represents. You want the power to live for God in this culture today? You're going to find it empowered by the Holy Spirit and through his word. You want to live for God in the culture today? You need the manna from heaven. You need that, those promises that you can stand on, that you are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus, that all things work together for good. Are you, that it is he that works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Those promises, he's the Lord God that heals us. He is the Lord God our provider. All of those promises of scripture, that's the manna from heaven. 
And then it says this. It says, and I will give him white stones. Isn't that an interesting thing? I mean, and I, I've, you know, when you read through Scripture, I've said this so many times, I'll, I'll say it again this morning, is that you just got to read it for what it says. Hang with me just a few more moments. So we, we see about these white stones. These white stones. And so white stones, so for us to be able to apply that, does anybody know what white stones meant in the first century? Okay, well, my illustration may work then, because none of you raised your hand. So for us to be able to apply that to our life, what do we understand? For that to make sense, we've got to understand what white stones meant in the first century. Right? So think about this. White stones could mean several things. Yes, Kaylee, several. She said several means seven things. We had a little... I'm just embarrassed her. I'm sorry. So white stones meant several things. One of the reasons they were used, when somebody was on trial, a judge would put a white stone. Now think, think about this. This may not excite you, but it excites me. He would put the stone in a vessel, and what that meant was that you were acquitted. You were acquitted. You were put on trial. You were accused of something, but a judge found you innocent. Oh, come on, somebody. You were found forgiven. So that was one of the meanings of the white. So think about that. So when he says, I will give him a white stone, I'm going to give, if you endure, you're going to find the salvation that you've been longing for. You're going to be acquitted. You're going to be forgiven. But it, it didn't stop there. You know what it also meant? It was used as a ticket. So you know back in the day, right, the Olympics and all that kind of stuff back then. And, but the winners, they didn't get gold, bronze, and silver medals. You know what they got? They got winners got white stones. Then you know what they did after they won their Wait a minute. It seems like there's a scripture. I press on the marker. I run the race before me. When they, when they won their prize, they got a white rock. Ooh. But you know what they do with that white rock? It was a ticket. They would have a big festival, a big celebration when the sports events were over. And the only way that you could get into the banquet was have a white rock as a ticket. Oh, come on, somebody. Forgiven. Oh, there's going to be a day, every tongue, tribe, and nation, for those who are written in the name, the Lamb's Book of Life, we're going to have a celebration called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Come on. You've got to have your ticket, and that ticket is salvation. But it didn't, it didn't stop there. There was a third meaning. Let me find which one it is. Here we go. It was also a way, if you had a white stone, you know what you could do? You could trade it for bread. You could trade it for bread. What does bread represent in Scripture? The Word of God. Jesus said you, that my words to you, they are spirit and they are life. Wow. Hopefully that wasn't anticlimactic for you. If you would stand this morning. 
for joining us for our podcast. Again, if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find us online at odessafirst.com or on any social media platform. I hope that you are encouraged through today's message and that you'll join us again.